On Thursday evening, as I listened to the president address the nation and the world, I was impacted by many of the things that he said, but one thought stood out above the others. In fact, it was more than a thought, it was an ultimatum. When the president faced the camera and said these words, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, I was stunned by the simplicity yet depth of such a statement. In essence, what he was saying to all people and all nations of the world was that it was time to choose this day. Choose this day the direction that you will go. Choose this day which side you are on and do not take lightly the choice that you shall make for with that choice will come benefits or consequences. In our ongoing study of the book of Acts, we come to one of the many passages in the Bible that clearly issues a similar ultimatum. Choose this day. Choose this day whom you shall serve, whether it will be God or whether it will continue to be self. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13, where we find these words written in verses 42 through 52. We read, and as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. It says, and in the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus it says the Lord, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. No passage in all of Scripture attacks modern-day easy believism with more force than that found in Matthew chapter chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In Matthew 7, we see the conclusion of the Sermon of the Mount, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ's own presentation of the way of salvation. There's no encouragement in these words for those who think they can be saved by any casual acceptance of the facts about Jesus Christ, or that somehow a neutral position is a safe haven. Again, I'm reminded of the words, you're either for us or you're against us. There is no middle ground. And if we look at these words that are found there, if you've turned already, look at Matthew chapter 7. And listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as he explains or lays down an ultimatum of a choice that each person must make. He says, enter, verse 13, chapter 7, by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Each person inevitably must make a, make a choice, make a decision, must choose. Scripture presents the choice in several ways. As I've done a word study and gone through the Word of God, we find, for example, through Moses, God confronted the Israelites saying these words, I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. And Joshua challenged the Israelites as they entered the promised land. And these words found in chapter 24, verse 15. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah called for a decision on Mount Carmel when he said these words, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If you say Baal is God, then follow him. God told Jeremiah, You shall also say to this people, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. You must choose between the two. What to do with Jesus Christ is a choice each person must make. But it is not just a momentary decision. It is a once-for-all verdict with ongoing implications and eternal consequences. It's the ultimate decision that each person must make. Jesus himself stands at the crossroads of each person's destiny and demands a deliberate choice of life or death, of heaven or hell. Here in this passage, in the culmination of all he has said in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord requires that each person choose between following the world on the easy, well-traveled road or following him on a difficult road. It says you will not find a plainer statement of the gospel as was presented in this passage by the Lord Jesus Christ. In that passage, if you'll notice, we find two gates. One is great and one is small. There are two roads. One is broad and one is narrow. There are two destinations. One is life and one is eternal destruction. There are two crowds. There are the few and there are the many. The Lord also in this passage goes on to identify two kinds of trees and their fruit. There are good and bad. Two kinds of builders, those who are wise and foolish. Two kinds of foundations. One is on the rock and one is on sand. The choices are clear-cut. He demands a decision. We are all at the crossroads, and each individual must choose which way he or she will go. There is no middle ground, and there is no time left to decide what you'll do. Crisis moments brings us to tough decisions. The world has long floundered between making a decision. Such a crisis time as this causes one to decide which side are you on. Each one of us are faced with that decision. Each one of us are at the crossroads of our life. For no matter how we die, we are all in agreement that we shall die. 
It is appointed by God for man to die once, and then comes judgment. The choice that we make now will not only have eternal consequences, but temporal ones as well. Choose wise, and you choose life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it more abundantly than you could ever know. Choose wrongly, and you choose death. But it is our choice. Which all leads us back to Acts chapter 13, where here too the gospel would prove to be divisive. It's like a giant rock that's cast into a tiny pond and it shattered the calm of what at that time was a neutral world to some degree concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would require a decision to be made. It would bring people to that point of deciding one way or the other, but nonetheless to make a decision. The passage describes the different reactions to the sermon that Paul had just preached and the verses that were leading up prior to this in 16 through 41, which we examined a couple weeks ago. And in verses 42 through 44, we find the initial reaction of the message that he had just shared. Verses 42 through 44, we read these words. It says, and as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. It says, in the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. The initial reaction to Paul's sermon by the synagogue audience was favorable, though as is so often the case, the attitudes would soon change. Four features of the initial reaction, uh, this positive reaction, stand out. The first thing that I noticed was in verse 42, that they were pleased by what they had heard. They were intrigued by what they heard. And in fact, if you look at the words, they kept begging for more. They were begging for more. Wow, could you imagine there is no greater compliment paid to a preacher than an audience begging for more? Can you imagine? These people weren't looking at their watches, and, and not just because they didn't own any. I mean, <laughs> some of you would be going, well, it's because they, they didn't have them then. I know that was a trick. I mean, I know. I know how you people think. And they weren't looking at them because they didn't own them. They weren't looking at them because they didn't care. They were captivated by what God through Paul had to say. They were begging for more. Can you imagine? You're not done, are you? We got all day. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Please, I hope you're not getting some strange thought up there, sir. Because <laughs> we got places to go. But I want you to stop and think about something here. They were begging for more. Why were they begging for more? What had they just heard? None other than God's plan for mankind. Think about it. God's plan for man in great detail. Our world today longs for such information. Where is God? What is he doing? What is he up to? Is this part of his plan? Is this part of his purpose? The essence of the message was very simple. In that message, in great detail, Paul explained that man chose in Adam to disobey God. 
The Bible says that disobedience is called sin. The Bible says that through that one momentous decision in human history, that all of us are born into the world alienated from God. God said, if you do it, you shall surely die. Death, by definition, is a separation. A separation, spiritually. Spiritual death is being separated from God. We are all born into the world separated from God. As David said in Psalm 139, In my mother's womb I was conceived in sin and iniquity. I was born separated from God, spiritually dead. Physical death is the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. That person does not cease to exist, but exists somewhere else rather than here at the moment of their death. They will either be in the presence of God or they will be waiting for final execution of judgment where they will be spiritually separated from God for all of eternity. See, Paul had told the audience that that was their present state. And that in and of themselves there was no hope. And they were lost. But he said the good news is for those who recognize that, that God has provided a remedy. That God's plan for man is to save man from the condemnation of sin and the consequences. To, as the Bible says, to redeem man, which means to buy back that which was lost. How would this happen? God would send a Savior into the world. Who is that Savior? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Who came into the world, he said, to seek and to save that which was lost. When was it lost? When was it condemned? When Adam chose to disobey God. And with that choice, all of us were lost. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He offered him up as a sacrifice for that sin. That he came to this earth and he walked upon the face of the earth so that man could see who he was. He identified himself by the different and multiple miracles that he did that had never been done in human history. He opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf and he rose people, he raised them from the dead. All foretold by the prophets long ago that the Savior, when he came, would be easily identifiable. That is what he did. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. More than able or capable to forgive sin and more than able to offer eternal life. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That our hope is in Him and Him alone. And that all who would recognize what God said is true and confess and agree with God, you're right, even on my best day, I'm not perfect. And if you demand perfection, then what you say about me is true, then I am truly a sinner. And I turn to you, and I turn from sin, and I ask you now to forgive me for that sin. And I respond with faith to what you say is true of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross for me. That he rose again three days later as you told us he would. He is truly the Savior of the world. And at that moment in time, at this moment in time, I want him to be my Savior. The Lord said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. See, that is the message that the Apostle Paul shared with his audience Paul preached that Jesus was the culmination of all human history. Everything that God was going to do, he was doing through the person and the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said the fulfillment of all prophecies, and we discussed in great detail 60 major prophecies written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the face of the earth, were fulfilled in their entirety with more than 270 ramifications. The probability, the statistics were 10 to the 157th power that they could have been fulfilled by anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He filled them all. He is who he claims to be, God in human flesh, the Son of God who gave himself up for the world. For those who would believe, sufficient for all, but applicable only to those who would believe. He was the justifier of sinners. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would later explain it to another audience in the city of Corinth when he shared these words with them. Starting at verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Notice that. Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their their trespasses or transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He has committed to us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that message of reconciliation, God being reconciled to man through the person and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What is the message that we're to share with the world? Not just in times of crisis, but in times of peace. Because while the world may be at peace with one another, the world is never at peace with God. We're an enemy to God. We're enemies of God. It is because of our choice and our sin that the Lord Jesus Christ had to go to the cross and suffer Tremendous cruelty so that we could find forgiveness through Him. The world is at enmity with God. Even when we all get along, we still are far from God. What is the message that we are to share? Be reconciled to God. Because even on your best day, you're far from God. And sometimes you wonder, how much further can we get? The point is very simple. They were pleased to hear this truth. And for many in that audience who were searching for God, they were not disappointed. Can you tell us more about this God who loved us so greatly? Can you tell us more about His plan for our lives? Can you tell us more about what He's going to do in the future? Can you tell us more about what we have to look forward to? Can you tell us more about what is it that we should do now that we have responded in faith? Can you tell us more? They were pleased. They couldn't wait. They kept begging for more. For a preacher to so fascinate his listeners that they demand to hear him again is a testimony to the effectiveness of his preaching. But for an audience to delay a conclusion about Jesus Christ, that is a very dangerous thing. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For he says, God says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
2 Corinthians 6, 2, the writer of Hebrews echoed the psalmist who wrote these words. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. The point is very simple. The purpose of the message is to bring about a decision. To choose this day to recognize that you are a sinner. To choose this day to turn from sin and turn to God. To choose this day to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and the power of His resurrection. To choose this day eternal life, rather than to reject that message and choose death. You are either with Him or you are against Him. And those are the only two choices that God offers to any of us. What have you chosen? And when? One of the things that we get so frustrated about when we listen to speakers is that we wander and we walk away thinking, what did we just hear? What was just said? How can one interpret that and somehow or another still be comfortable in the position that we're in? But when you look and you say very clearly, today you must make a choice. You are either with us or you are against us. It is time to get out of neutral. That is the essence of the message of God to every one of us as individuals. You either believe what I say or you do not. You either accept the gift that I give to you or you reject it. There is no fuzzy middle ground. Which have you chosen? And when? Because I'll guarantee you, when you make a momentous decision in life, you know when you did it. I know when I got married. I know the date. Now, there are times where sometimes, as men, we need reminded, but we know the date. You do not make life altering, changing decisions and not know when. Every nation of the world will know the date that they decided to either stand behind us or to rise up against us. They will know that moment in time when they make that decision. We live in a world today where people say, well, uh, yeah, I think I'm a Christian. Well, yeah, no, I am. When did you make that decision? What were the circumstances surrounding it? When did you recognize what God said was true, that you were a sinner? When did you repent from sin and turn to Christ? When did you respond to the gift that God was offering you? That indescribable gift of forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. When did you make that decision? I don't want to hear, well, I was baptized. I know because I gave all those answers, but I was baptized as an infant. I I, I was confirmed later in life. I, I went to church every day. I went to private schools. That's not the question. The question is, when did you surrender your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? If God is speaking to you today, he says to you, choose this day. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. You are either with him or you are against him. There is no middle ground. Number two is they were persistent. Notice that in verse 43a. 
Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Notice that. Some were so affected by his message, they couldn't wait for next week. And in fact, they they were disappointed because he stopped. They couldn't get enough of the word. How about you? Have you looked at your watch yet? You see, I mean, that really is, is the test, isn't it? How about you? Are you sitting here saying, I cannot wait to get out of here? Then I'll tell you bluntly, there's good evidence that you are against him. Because you're uncomfortable. You want to run from the truth. You don't want to be confronted by it. You don't want to have to make a decision. You want to just continue to live in the comfortable bubble that you live in. You don't want to have to make a decision. Well, you know what? That's just too bad. There are nations around the world saying, why do we have to make this decision? We would rather not. You know what? That's just too bad. It's time to make a decision. It is my hope and prayer that the countless number of folks who have been softened spiritually by the recent horrific events of murder and declaration of war against terrorism will be equally persistent in their search for God, for His plan, for His answers as revealed in the Bible, and will choose this day to trust in Him, to put your hope in God and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But I am also very much aware of sin nature. I am very much aware of humanity's decision in times of crisis to run to God, to bail us out. This is too big. We can't handle this. This is bigger than all of us. There's nowhere else to go but to Him. So we run to Him, and when the danger passers of that moment is behind us, we then begin to turn our back on Him and reject Him once again. That is the sin nature of man. The irony of this is not lost to me, and that we have a nation who has turned to prayer and to God, a same nation that only three months ago would not allow our students to pray at their commencement exercises, that somehow was a violation of the rights of others. Now, don't get me wrong. It's time to turn to God and pray. But it is also time to expose what has been going on in our country for decades of the systematic removal of God from our society. It was not long ago where we were taking the Ten Commandments down from our courthouses because it violated somebody's rights. Or the state of Ohio was being torn between changing their state logo because it had something to do or reference God. Or removal of in God we trust from our coins because it violated someone's human rights. Let's expose what has been going on because now is the time to do that. Let's pray and continue to pray. Let us humble ourselves as a people and as a nation and turn to God and pray. But the Bible promises it's only after we turn from our wicked ways that He will hear our prayers and He will heal our land. You cannot go to God and pray that He would bless you in your sin. You go to God and you ask Him for forgiveness and that we've made a wrong decision. We've turned from Him and we've gone the wrong way. And God, forgive us for our sin. And we repent. We turn from the direction that we're going and we turn back to you and we ask for forgiveness and our God is gracious. If we confess our sins, He is, he is just and righteous in forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Last week, the crowds arrived around the country 
going to their churches, going to their synagogues, their places of worship, in record numbers. The freshness of the tragedy was on everybody's minds. Oh, and by the way, there was no football, and there was no baseball, and there was no other distraction. It was like, what are we going to do today? There's nothing to do. I guess we should just go to church. We turn to God, and rightly so. But for what reason, and for how long? God does not exist to serve man. Man exists to serve God. We go to God and we seek His will. We seek His direction. We seek His sovereignty and His purpose. We don't go to Him and tell Him what we want. If we do, we do not understand the sovereignty of God. Should the potter tell the, you know, should the, should the pot tell the potter how it should have been made? That was the illustration that the Apostle Paul gave to the Corinthians. Who do we think we are as people? That we can tell God what he should do. Job said, I have heard of you. Now I see you. I will put my hand over my mouth. And I will not question you anymore. Being in the heating and air conditioning business, I've often thought how wonderful a product duct tape is. (laughs) And how appropriate it would be to start handing it out. I put my hand over my mouth and I do not question you anymore. You are God and I am not. I will listen and you will instruct me. The initial reaction was they were pleased. They were persistent. And notice also they were professing. And what I mean by professing is they were professing that they had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. And they were speaking to them. And Paul and Barnabas were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Some in the crowd who heard Paul's sermon apparently professed to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as they continued to speak to him, Paul and Barnabas were speaking to them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Whether the faith of those listening was genuine was not immediately apparent. Notice, they needed to validate their confession by continuing in the grace of God. Men and women, one of the compelling evidences of a person who has genuinely come to faith in the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ is perseverance to continue in the faith. Jesus said, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser and every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. It says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they shall be burned. The apostle John describes those whose faith was not genuine as those who, quote, went out from us. But they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. Oftentimes we don't know 
whether a person's confession or profession of faith is genuine. God knows our heart. He knows whether it's true or not. But the reality of it is simply this. We must show some evidence in our life that the profession that we make with our lips is demonstrated by how we live our life. The easy believism of our culture is one that's damning at, at, at its very worst. Although you were formerly, Colossians 1, 21 and 23, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. In order to present you before God, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The key phrase is, if you continue. Jesus gave a similar warning when he preached about the parable of the sower and the seed, when he said that there were those who received the word gladly. I was like, wow, I never heard anything like this. Wow, this is great. They received it gladly. Only that the word was choked out because of the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The moment of crisis has passed and now it's time to get back on with life, however that is or however we knew it. I know that's the case. A little over a year ago, I was called to go to the City of Hope Hospital where a young man was lying, he was dying in a cancer ward. And his family called me to go to meet with them and meet with him. And I praise God that the man who was dying, the young man who was dying, had made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was evidence in his life that it was real, that it was genuine. As he lay there in all the pain from radiation and all the pain from the cancer, he could not help but just to praise God in the midst of all of it. It's a sign of genuine faith. As I met in a waiting room with the parents and the wife and other friends that were there, and I explained to them what the Apostle Paul explained to his audience, what I just explained to you, that each one of us are sinners, separated from God, but God loves us anyway. And he sent Jesus Christ to die on, our, on the cross in our place, that whoever would believe in him would find forgiveness and everlasting life. The response was, thank you for sharing that. And I watched over time at the memorial service. And I saw uh, uh, over time as they came to church or got involved in Bible study or whatever it was. But then I also saw over time, there was no longer any need. There was no longer any interest. There was no longer any evidence of a genuine conversion experience. The same will happen should peace return and normalcy return. My fear is that normalcy will bring about a rejection of God. If that's what normal is, I hope normalcy never returns. Because the only thing that matters is eternity. The only thing that matters is where we spend our final destination... Because our hope is not in this life, but it is in the life to come. And if the upset of normalcy is what drives men and women to their knees to confess their sin and repent and turn to God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more gracious could God be than to allow such events to provide eternal hope for each who trust in Him? One of the tragedies of contemporary evangelism is giving 
folks a false sense of assurance as to an apparent relationship to God, the logic goes like this, or the reasoning. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. You have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are saved. It sounds good. But the problem is, it presupposes that the faith that they placed in the Lord Jesus Christ was a genuine saving faith. And the only way we know whether it is or not is that we continue in the faith. That our lives demonstrate what our lips profess. If you are a new creature, all things pass away, all things become new. You were once dead to God, alive to sin. As you've come to faith in Christ, you are now alive to God and dead to sin. The old passions that you had, the old things that you did, the old desires that you wanted to fulfill, you can no longer do them because the Holy Spirit's presence in your life says, Chuck, stop doing those things. They're not pleasing to God. And you'll feel uncomfortable. And the people around you will feel uncomfortable that you're there. Because you'll be raining on their parade. Either you will stop doing those things or they will stop inviting you if you're not doing it with them when you're with them. Ephesians 4 contrasts what it means to walk in newness of life. Galatians 5, the same thing. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, not just a professor. Actions will dictate what it is that you say. It's a public proclamation. Being born again, the Apostle Paul summed it all up when he said, before he died, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. And they're waiting ahead of me. What lies ahead of me is the crown of righteousness that awaits all who long for and look for God's appearing. We can't wait. It's not our works or efforts or perseverance that saves us or makes us right with God. Understand carefully. It is not our efforts. It is not our perseverance in our efforts. It is none of those things that assures us that we are saved. Salvation is not man's effort. It is God's accomplishment through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine biblical assurance of salvation is God's gift through the Holy Spirit to obedient believers. His Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And when I walk in obedience, there is never any doubt in my heart and in my mind that that truth is a reality. The only people I ever talk to who struggle with that are, number one, those who have never come to genuine faith because they continue to try to work their way to heaven. Or number two, those who have come to faith and are living a life of sin and disobedience before God and in their hearts they have no assurance anymore of their relationship with God. And instead of confessing their sin and repenting and turning from it, they try to find passages that will somehow assure them that you can live any way that you want to live because once saved, always saved, you're in, don't worry about it. And the Bible says, how can we continue to sin? How can you continue to live in sin? The argument was, hey, God's graceful, man will forgive us, doesn't matter how we live. God says, how can we continue to live in sin who have experienced the love and the grace of God, who have experienced the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and on our behalf, who have experienced the power of the resurrection? How can we cast so lightly or take so lightly that Jesus paid the ultimate price for our forgiveness? He says, man, you know what? We don't have a good understanding of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. They were professing to be believers. And they also, notice this, they were present. In verse 44, they were present. Don't miss this. 
And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. They showed up. Think about this. This, don't miss this. How do you know a person is interested in spiritual truth? They'll show up. You invite them to church, they'll come. You invite them to a Bible study, they'll come. You invite them to have lunch so you can talk about spiritual things, they'll meet you. They'll show up. How do you know your pursuit of God is real? There's going to be a sacrifice. You will have to sacrifice. I love a friend of mine who every Sunday would go golfing. Over a period of time, he came to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He repented of his sin and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. And he would start to come to church. And he would start to learn. And he'd be like, whoa, I never heard anything like this. This is, this is, this is unbelievable. This is great. And then a few times he'd take Sunday off and he'd go back to going golfing again. Next time I saw him, he'd go like this. You're killing my golf game. You are killing my golf game. Well, what do you mean I'm killing your golf game? I mean, when I golf with you, I know how I could kill your golf game. You know, because, you know, golf's a, golf, it's a thing of momentum. And if you're floundering after me, I know I could get... But well, I'm not even with you. How am I killing your golf game? He goes, I'm out on the golf course. And I'm ready to hit my next shot. And all of a sudden, there, I've got this thought like... wonder what you're missing at Bible study. And I'm in my backswing going, man, you know what? I'm missing some stuff. And you can't concentrate. And so it was very simple. I said, look, brother, golf a different time. <laughs> right? Our pursuit of God will have us sacrificing something. Will it not? Those who pursue God, though, will miss a football game, a baseball game, a soccer game. They'll make sure their schedule works out so that their pursuit of God isn't uh, somehow or another sidetracked by their pursuit of the temporal things of this life. And don't misunderstand, I love golf, I love sports, you all know that. I mean, this is amazing, I think I almost got through a whole message without using a sports illustration. But just in case some of you guys were, you know, waiting for it, I think that was just it. But, um, <clears throat> but the reality of all of it is, is that, you know, how serious are we? We, we live in a culture that's like, just give me $3 worth of God. That's all I need to get from here to there. Don't fill my tank. Don't go overboard. Just give me enough to just get by. They couldn't wait to get back. And the reason the whole town showed up is because the people that were there the prior week were so excited about what they heard, they thought maybe they should invite a friend. How's that? That's revolutionary. They thought, man, you know what? I think we'll invite a friend. 
I know someone that needs to hear that message. I know somebody who's struggling with the events of this life. I know somebody who needs to know that God is in control, that God loves people, that God sent Christ to die upon the cross for the sins of the world, and that those who believe will never have to worry about spiritual death or separation from God and will have abundant life this side of eternity and in the life to come. I know people that need to hear that. How about you? The whole city showed up. And we rarely invite anybody. Why? We don't want to offend anybody. We'd rather have them just go to hell than invite them to church. Because that's offensive. What is more offensive than not caring enough to confront with the truth? And you'll notice what happens, as always happens, is that the subsequent response was, first of all, was negative. Notice this. It was negative. In verse 45, it says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They were even blaspheming against God. Notice that. But subsequent response was negative. As is always the case, the gospel of Jesus Christ draws a line in the sand, issues the ultimatum, made him choose this day. And after the initial positive response to Paul's sermon, the subsequent reaction split along racial lines. The Jews didn't want to hear it. They felt they were threatened by what was going on. They didn't like the fact the crowds were turning to Paul and they were turning away from the law and the prophets, they thought. But they didn't understand that the law and the prophets were leading them to faith in Jesus Christ. The law was a tutor to lead them to the Savior. But they were filled with jealousy and envy and, and rage. And it was negative. And the negative response is the same response that we'll see. They blasphemy. Think of this. They spoke wrongly against God. They were speaking evil of God and Jesus Christ. They rejected their only hope for salvation. And they made clear that their initial profession of faith was not one at all. But it was lip service. No true believer could ever be guilty of such blasphemy. No true believer could ever be guilty of profaning the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God would rise up within us. I grew up in an area and a family that used the name of Jesus in vain on a regular basis. Everything. Terry Bradshaw threw an interception, Jesus' name came up. I listen to accounts and I hear videos in the the, the audio of the video and I hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ used in, in vain and blasphemy. I listen to talk show hosts say things like, you know, good Christ. What is going on? No believer could ever take the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ and use it in a profane name without the Spirit of God saying, That is your Lord. He is your Savior. Do not speak like that of Him. They profaned the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they declared their guilt before God. Those who repudiate the gospel judge themselves and make themselves unworthy of eternal life. People perish because they choose to reject and they refuse to believe and their choice shuts them out of eternal life. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He said, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. The word of God is clear. The message is concise. Choose this day, Jesus as your savior and you choose life reject him and you choose death but you have the freedom to choose those folks choose death the gentiles who had heard the message 
rejoiced, and chose life. And as I read this, I am just fascinated by the fact that, for thus the Lord has said in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't this wonderful? The teaching of the sovereignty of God and the individual freedom choice of man is very clear throughout the Bible. As many as had been appointed to eternal life responded and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word appointed has to do with being written in. Do you realize that the name of believers has been written in before the foundation of the world in God's book of life? The Lamb's book of life, our names are written there. We sing songs, your name is written there on the page, white and fair. I mean, our name is written there. Think about this. Before you and I ever came into existence, before yet we've lived a day, before we were conceived in our mother's womb, it had been appointed to us every day that we will live, how we will die, the circumstances of it. And before that, our name was written there. Even though we have a choice to make, the sovereignty of God is clearly taught throughout the word of God. Our name is written there. Our problem is we don't know whose name is written there. God does, but we must respond. We must choose. And the only way that we can choose is because God first chose us. Salvation is all of God. The fact that I responded to the grace of God on February 16, 1978 and received Jesus Christ as my Savior was because He drew me to Himself. And that compelling love, I didn't have a choice but to say, forgive me for my sin. He chose me. Before the foundation of the earth, He chose me. And He chose you. It's time for some of us to choose Him. The inevitable results as always, and we'll close with this, are twofold. Since there's only two gates, since there's only two roads, since there's only two types of people, there will always be only two results. One is that of persecution. But the Jews aroused devout women of prominence and leading men of the city instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drove them out of the district. They didn't want to hear the word of God. They didn't want to hear the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. They persecuted them. Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet in protest against what they had just done. They knew that rebuke was the greatest rebuke that they could ever receive because every Jew knew that before they would walk on their precious land, after coming from a Gentile land, they would dust the Gentile feet from their shoes. And what Paul and Barnabas were saying to them was that, you know what? As high and mighty as you think you are, you are no better than the Gentiles because they are far from God and so are you. And we dust our feet of you. And so they persecuted them. Violence has always been the weapon of choice to silence God's truth. But God's truth keeps marching on. The other side of it was they praised Him. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There's only two choices. You hate one and you love the other. You persecute the message or you praise God for it. In closing, I came across a clipping from a daily newspaper in Melbourne, Australia. It's a letter to the editor written just after a Billy Graham crusade. And I want to wrap everything up with this. This man writes, After hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, viewing him on television and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, 
I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists on my soul and everyone else's need saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul I must accept such a message as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. What a sad letter. But the truth is that the man understood the stark choices and made the wrong one. I can either choose to believe that message or I can choose to reject it. I will choose to reject it. And he made that choice. The great tragedy is that there are multitudes on the road with him and most of them think they're heading for heaven, and instead they will end in destruction and damnation, victims of what I would call satanic delusion. From the very beginning, the evil one has always tried to influence the world that what the word of God says is not true. Surely God didn't mean that when he said it. Surely God doesn't mean that the only way you can be forgiven is by recognizing your sin and repenting and responding with faith to the finished work of Christ. Surely he doesn't mean when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father by, but through me. Surely the word of God can't be accurate when he says, there's no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely that's not true. The delusion and the lie from the beginning has always been to call into question the very word and reliability of God. And I say to you this day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that surely the message of hope and salvation in Jesus Christ and no other name is true based upon the authority of the Word of God. There are only two roads. One leads to heaven, and the gatekeeper is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The other is broad, and many are on it. And that road leads to final damnation, and the place the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. But there are only two choices. God has drawn a line in the sand and says to all of us, choose this day whom you will serve. In closing, I want to do something that I rarely do, and the more that I think about it, I, I almost have to confess before God and repent for not doing it. But I want to today, if you today or in recent past have recognized that you're a sinner, have repented of sin and responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, I want you to stand up. And the reason for it is very simple. Because Jesus Christ always called people out of the crowds to take a public stand for what they declared in their heart. We as a nation are doing the same thing. The nations around the world saying, you can't whisper you're on our side behind closed doors and then make public statements to the contrary. Any wife knows and has felt the hurt of a husband who says behind closed doors, I love you, but in public never demonstrates it whatsoever. Any wife knows the hurt of a husband who would go out and demonstrate publicly that is what opposite of what they say behind closed doors. Or they leave their wedding ring at home and they don't wear it in public for a public commitment or a public acknowledgement. We all understand that as people. And yet when it comes to choosing whether we serve the Lord or not, we want people to live in this nebulous, neutral zone of, hey, it's a private thing between just you and God. But you know what? I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Jesus said, you follow me. And they stood up if they wanted to. 
And they left their businesses and they left their families and they've left everything of value and importance to them because in Him was eternal life. There were many who said, but I can't go. I I got business to take care of. I I got things that I need to do. I I got other stuff going on. And you know what? And they chose not to follow. But the choice is a public choice. Expression of a private or personal decision. And if you have come to faith in Christ, I want you to stand up. And I must also warn you that if you're standing because you feel the pressure of being in a room of people who just stood, that God knows your heart. And he knows that you're playing a game. But that's between you and him. But he loves you anyway. And he sent his son to die on the cross for you. For all of you who are standing, it is my prayer that each one of us will be as bold in public as we leave these doors and go into the world, that we will be just as bold in our public acknowledgement that we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that He is the only hope for mankind, He is the only Savior of the world, that we would wake up from our sleep and that we will redeem the time wisely because we don't know how much time we have, but we know we're in God's hands. And in that we take great comfort. Our Heavenly Father, we just, as you see those who stand before you today, may you hold each one of us accountable for this public declaration of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we live in a world today that wants everybody to believe that there's a million different roads leading to heaven, but that's exactly what Jesus warned of in Matthew 7, that that road is broad. And on that road are many who are they are deceived and deluded by the enemy. Lord, help us to become bold in our faith. I think of our brothers and sisters, even in Muslim countries today, who are persecuted and put in prison because they are not given the freedom to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think how wonderful it is, and yet at times I wonder sometimes that the freedom that we give any other religious group in our country to say whatever it is that they want to say. I thank you for the freedom that we have to express our faith. But I also wonder about the hypocrisy of nations around the world who would cast our brothers and sisters in Christ into prison and persecute them for proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be as bold... He tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead that we shall be saved. For it's with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, but with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. God, may we become people who confess and profess with our lips and live it so clearly with our life that we bring glory to our Father as in heaven. And we just praise you in the name of our wonderful Savior, the only answer to the problem of sin and death in the world today. In Jesus' name, amen.